Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Kayla is going to read our scripture reading this morning, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. And why don't you stand as we read this together? Kayla? Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Amen. This is the word of God. Please be seated. We continue in our series called All for Christ. As a church, we want to be all for Christ. And we remember these four angles that we have been discussing using the four points of the cross. We want to surrender all for Christ. As a a body of believers, we want to be all together for Christ. We want to join Christ on his mission and reach all for Christ. And we want to do all of this for Christ's glory. Today we're looking at this topic of transformation, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. Now we started our How to Study the Bible course this past week with about 25 people. And by the way, if you are thinking you'd still like to do that, even if you've missed the first week, it's not too late. Uh, You can talk to Rhoda or myself, and we will get you signed up Tuesday nights here at the church at 7. One of the key lessons that we're going to learn in this course of how to study the Bible is the importance of discerning what was the author's purpose in writing. Uh, So theologians call that authorial intent. We'll just say, what was the author's purpose? What was the author meaning? Why did he write? And so, when we come to the Apostle John, who wrote 1 John, he actually is the one who makes this most simple for us. When he wrote his gospel, he tells us exactly why he wrote his gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Jesus performed many other signs or miracles which are not recorded in this book, But these, the things that he wrote in his gospel, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we know exactly why John wrote his gospel. It's so that people could be introduced to Jesus, discover who he is for real, and come to a saving faith in him so that people would find salvation and eternal life in Christ. Now, John does exactly the same thing in this letter of 1 John. If you were to look at chapter 5, you would find exactly why he wrote this letter. And it's kind of similar to what he had written in his gospel. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he wrote his gospel so that people would believe and find salvation in Christ He wrote this letter to the people who believe so that they would know they have eternal life. Now, some of us who've been around the church and been around this Christian faith for a long time, if I were to ask the question, have you ever struggled to feel assurance of your faith? If I would ask, and I I almost feel tempted to do it, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to put my hand up and say, I am someone who has struggled with assurance of my faith. Has anyone else struggled with that? Would you like to put your hand up and show me? 
many of us, it looks like almost all of us, have struggled with assurance of our faith. And as I've been thinking about this and thinking about this message, I've been thinking about the history of this church. Paul Hoffman pointed out to me uh, after last week's sermon that our webpage actually has quite a bit of history. If you want to go to the About tab, uh, go to the church webpage, click on About, you can scroll down and you'll see a button there for History. And then under History, you'll see some pictures, you have a little bit of a description, and then there's three different articles that you can click on, PDF documents, that you can click on and read about the history of our church. This church began in the 1930s, and it began with people who, as John wrote in his gospel, came to find uh, eternal life in Christ. Primarily, people who had, been, who had found themselves in a religious system that relied upon our good works. In other words, that we could perhaps find a righteousness with God, we could perhaps find eternal life with God, if perhaps we could somehow be good enough and keep all of God's commands and keep all of the rules. And we could go back, in fact, there are some of our older folks, I'm looking back there at Mel, I hope you don't mind me pointing you out, Mel, but we have a few people who still have memories of some of the early days of the church, and I would argue that people like Mel actually know what it's like to be saved and rescued out of this system where either you, you either have no assurance that you're saved because how could you ever keep the rules well enough, or you really think you are keeping the rules and you're full of self-righteousness and you're certainly not saved. Those are your options. So the early days of our church, it was a point in time when people discovered that it's not on me. I cannot save myself. I cannot keep all the rules and make myself righteous. And they discovered that Jesus is the one who makes us righteous. He was the one who went to the cross, took the penalty for our sin as our substitute. And having believed in him, he transfers over to us his righteousness just as our sin was transferred to him on the cross. This was glorious good news. People who thought that they had to earn salvation could never be sure if they did, now discovered that salvation is a gift from God that comes through Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, that is the history of our church, and we continue to hold to that good news of the gospel. But I want to point out some fatal, I'm going to call it this, fatal responses to the gospel. And I think this is important for us to recognize and wrestle with as a church. The most obvious fatal response to the gospel is to simply reject it. I'm hoping you can see these words on the screen from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It tells us that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, meaning when he comes again, he's going he's to be revealed from heaven in blazing fire. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. We are Wallenstein Bible Chapel. We believe in God's word. And for that reason, we believe in eternal wrath. We believe in hell. And the Bible says that hell is reserved for people who are like the devil, who have rejected God and rejected his rule and rebelled against him. This text tells us that when people 
hear the gospel, are exposed to the gospel, and reject that good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, they're saying, I don't need Jesus. I don't think I'm a sinner. Or maybe they say, I don't think there's a God. I don't think I'm accountable to God. I don't think I, I, don't, I don't need to be saved. That is a rejection that results in the eternal destruction and punishment of God. The most obvious fatal response to the gospel is to reject salvation. But then there's another fatal response to the gospel, and that is the one we've discussed, uh, the one that this church came out of, this idea that I can earn my salvation. Brothers and sisters, that is a fatal response to the gospel. Make no mistake. People around us who still are in that system, who are assuming that I can earn a right standing with God, that is a fatal response to the gospel. And that might seem strong. I know many of you have people who are still in a system like that. But according to the word of God, this is the truth. That if you believe and if your, your effort is, I am going to earn salvation through my good works, through rule keeping, we've got to wrestle with what scripture says. Here in Galatians, you can go to Romans chapter 4 and see the same thing. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law what does it mean it means that if you want to rely on your religious efforts your good deeds your rule keeping you are automatically under a curse because you can't keep it all there's only one human being who's ever fully kept and fulfilled the word of God, and that is Jesus. The rest of us have failed to do so. And so if we set ourselves into a system or a mindset where we say, I can do this, I can earn salvation with God, I can earn, I can prove to God that I'm fully righteous, that I am worthy of his eternal, uh, eternal home, we immediately place ourselves under a curse because it's not possible. And the law that was meant to show us that we're not perfect and that we can't keep it becomes a false gospel that gives us false hope. And the Bible is clear. You want to work your way to God? You want to work your way to heaven? Actually, you find yourself under a curse. That is not salvation. That is a fatal response to the gospel. Well, there's one more that I want us to wrestle with this morning, and I think this is applicable here, because one of the things that can happen when we think back to almost 100 years of history at this church, and, and, and people like Mel and, and, and Ollie, who have memories of some of those, maybe not quite all the way back. Are you, are you from the 30s, Mel? Are you? Late, 30s. Late 30s, there you go. Almost all the way back. But what can happen in a church like this where we have a generation of people who comes to find the beauty and the wonder of the gospel and, and embraces it and celebrates it and, and becomes a people that just loves Jesus and is genuinely saved? What happens over time? One generation leads to another. And in a church like this one, and especially in this environment in which we live, we have talked for generations, decade after decade at this church, about how salvation is not earned. It is a free 
gift from God. We have rightly preached that. But what can happen from one generation to the next is this. Salvation can become something that is assumed. In other words, well, I grew up at this church. Or or Mel's my grandpa. I've, I've come every Sunday. I've heard sermon after sermon. I've gone to Bible camp. Or we might say something like, yeah, when I was seven, I prayed a prayer. And there is this assumption that by association, because of my family or because of my church or because of some religious affiliations I have, that I'm in. Potentially without ever having wrestled with this reality that I am a sinner who cannot keep the law of God, that I am under the heavy hand of God's wrath because He's holy and I'm sinful. I am in danger of eternal fire and I need a Savior. I fear that we have people in this room who believe that they are saved but it's an assumed salvation, brothers and sisters. This is a fatal response to the gospel. You, you need to respond to the gospel in such a way that you recognize you are a sinner before God, where you cry out to him in repentance and faith, where you confess your sin to him, your need of a savior, where you recognize that Christ alone can save you of your sins Do not fall prey to an assumed salvation. Jesus said it this way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does, notice what it says here, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus was warning us of this very possibility of an assumed salvation. Do not let this be you. So we turn to 1 John chapter 2 as we think about these three potential fatal responses to the gospel. And I want us to begin by looking at verse 6. And remember now what John's purpose is as he was writing this letter of 1 John. He wanted those who truly believe to know that they know. He wanted genuine believers to be assured of their salvation. So in verse 6, he says it this way. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So let's look at that this way. Whoever claims to live in him, this is just a simple another way of saying whoever claims to be saved or whoever claims to be a believer, whoever claims to be a follower of Jesus, that's all that John is saying here. He's talking about someone who claims to be someone who belongs to Christ Whoever claims to live in him must, and I'm going to say it this way, my version says live as Jesus did. Literally, it says this, must walk as Jesus walked. So here we go again. We're right back to our discipleship pathway. 
a pathway in which we're trying to define for us clearly from God's word and from the words of Christ. This is what it looks like to be a genuine believer. We are on a journey, we are on a walk, and we are following Christ, and he, we've come to him for salvation. We've come to him because we trust in him, because we found life in him. And our goal now as a genuine believer is I just want to follow Christ, and I want to be like Christ, and I want to know what he knows, and I want to live as he lives. That is what it looks like to be a genuine believer. So a genuine believer has come to the cross, has come to that place of recognizing that I am a sinner lost, no hope before God, except that Christ went to the cross and took my place and took my sin. And now if I would repent and trust in him, God makes me alive and sets me on this life journey of following Jesus. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. And that's why we're talking today about transformation. Because if we're genuine believers, if we are all for Christ, this will be true of us. Now, are we all perfect yet? No. Actually, look up at the top of uh, chapter 2 of 1 John. My dear children, John writes in verse 1, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Then he says, but if anybody does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We're not speaking here today of sinless perfection. In fact, we won't be fully perfected, it says later in 1 John chapter 4, I believe, until we're standing in the very presence of Jesus. That is when our transformation will be in full effect, when we stand in his presence. But between now and then, we are on a journey where we are growing and we are being transformed. And on that journey, we're going to fail. We're going to sin. I've been at this church long enough that I've already had to make multiple apologies to people because I've let them down and I didn't behave in the way that I should have. And, and that's just part of life. But here's the good news, that Jesus isn't just the one who saves us, but he is our advocate. He stands before God. So as we go through this life and we stumble along, and, and you know, if we could draw a line of what it looks like to follow Jesus, hopefully over time it's moving up. We're growing. We're becoming more like him. But for most of us, it's a very broken line, isn't it? It's a jagged line. We have ups and we have downs. And when we sin and when we fail God, we have Jesus, our advocate, who is standing before God like a lawyer who's showing God his hands and reminding God that it was his blood that atoned for us, that we're truly his, and in, even though we fail, he has covered us. What good news. So we're not talking here about sinless perfection, but we're talking about a transformation. So I ask you this morning, as you look at this slide, as you look at verse 6 more importantly, does this define your life? Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Let me, let me be clear here as I say this. I'm not asking you if, you if you can stand up right now and say, I am exactly like Jesus. Because if you do that, you're lying. The question here in verse 6 is, what is your heart's cry? Is your heart to follow after Jesus? Do you have a deep longing to be like him? 
And when you read the Gospels and you see the wisdom that he brought when when those Pharisees would come and test him with questions and the absolute perfect wisdom that he would bring, when you see his compassion in the Gospels when the crowds would come and he'd say to his disciples, oh, I have compassion on these people. When you see that compassion, when you see him read about him, reach out and touch the, the leper with his disease, Is there something in you that stirs, that says, oh, I want to be more like that? Or is your life defined by a desire for other things? The things of the world. We'll read about that. If you read on in 1 John, you'll read about that too. Don't love the world or the things of the world. So easy for us in our affluent society to have one goal and one desire, and it's all about me. I want more. I want to earn more. I want to have more. I want to spend more. I want, I want bigger. I want better. I want to go places. When the defining, deepest desire of the follower of Jesus should be this, I want to follow Christ. I want to walk as Jesus walked. I want to know what he knows. I want to live as he lives. That's what it looks like to be a disciple. Is that true for you? Now, some of you maybe can hear me ask that question. And you take a few moments in your own mind and you think about it and you actually have to answer, no, not not really true of me at all. Some of you, as you recognize that that reality is there in your life, that you really don't long to walk as Jesus walked, it creates in you an alarm, which is the Holy Spirit speaking to you in this moment, stirring you up to see the Christian life more truthfully, more accurately, calling you forward to his goal and his will for your life, which First Thessalonians says his will is your sanctification. He wants to transform you. And if you're truly his, he will. Because Philippians says that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. So maybe you're sitting here and you answer the question, no, that's not really what my desire and goal has been. But you feel stirred by the Spirit to make changes in your heart and in your attitudes and in your choices so that you can follow Christ more faithfully. Or maybe you're sitting here today and hoping this sermon's going to be over soon and in the moment that you took to consider whether this is actually true of you, this is, of course, the Scripture. This is John. This is the Word of God placing a test before us. Do you want to be sure of your salvation? Well, here's a way you can be sure. Your heart's goal and fire is to follow Christ. And in that moment, you consider and realize that's not true for you. And you immediately move on to some other thought with no concern and no alarm. If that is true for you today, all I can do is in the strongest words possible is to alert you to the potential danger that you are in, that you may have an assumed salvation. That you think think you're okay because of your affiliations with the Christian faith, but there's no evidence in that moment in your heart and in your mind that what God says should be true of you is true at all. And the greatest concern I would have for you is that you don't seem to care. That is a grave concern. 
But for those of us who do long for this to be true, and maybe, maybe we can look at our life and say, yeah, I, I really do want to follow Jesus, and I'm seeing him gradually change me. Or maybe you're sitting here thinking, boy, I, I, I don't think this has been true of me, but I want this to be true of me. These verses help us, give us a little bit of help as to how this could be true, and as well, those tests of whether we know it is true for us. So look back at verse 3 now. And again, John wanting to provide us with assurance. If we're a true believer, remember he wants to provide us with assurance. He says this, verse 3, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Now here's what you need to realize is that when John provides assurance for believers, as he does in verse 3, He's also at the same time providing a warning for potentially someone who isn't really a believer, someone who has an assumed salvation. Notice verse 4 now, he's going to give the negative. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, strong language here, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Think of the truth as this. Not just the truth of whether or not you're saved, but the truth of Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That truth isn't in you. Here again, the warning. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. So think back to the history of our church and this wonderful reality that people who thought they had to earn salvation by keeping rules discovered that salvation was a free gift from God that comes from repentance and faith. We celebrate this freedom, this free gift. But what we still have to reckon with, brothers and sisters, is this truth of verse 3, that salvation in Christ and finding this free gift of Christ is not the absence of command. It is not the absence of God's word coming to bear upon us. This is not just here. This is all through scriptures. And Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So do not confuse this free gift of salvation that comes not from law keeping, but from faith in Christ. Do not mistake that to mean that we don't have to do anything that we have no responsibilities and no obligations. Recognize that even Adam and Eve, even before they sinned, had obligations placed upon them by the God who made them and ruled over them. I give you every seed-bearing fruit for food. You may eat of it. But you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of that, you will surely die. That was before sin. That was before God's judgment on the earth, God, the ruler, laying down his word, laying down parameters which, which were meant to bless Adam and Eve and keep them safe. Even before there was sin, there was God's word and God's commands. And now that God has provided salvation from sin, this reality still remains that there is a God who sits on a throne, who rules over all, who has a word that he has blessed us to know. And in that word, he says, Obey. 
His commands, of course, are not meant to be onerous and difficult and meant to kill our joy. Quite the opposite. The, the, the word of God and the commands of God are meant to provide us with a human life connected to his own in which we can truly flourish and be blessed. Understand this. This free salvation in Christ leads us into a relationship with God in which we still have obligations to obey him. So here's the first point I want us to see from these verses in 1 John chapter 2. Our relationship with Christ can be discerned by our attitude toward his commands. By the way, did you notice the beautiful language here? We know that we have come to know him. Isn't that nice? Again, John using a number of different phrases to simply describe the person who is a believer or who is saved. Don't you, I just love the fact that the Bible gives us so many of those metaphors and so many of those words to describe what it means to be his child. And I'm, I'm just doing that even as I say these things. To be saved is to be saved. To be saved is, is to be a child of God. It's to be a follower of Jesus. It's to, as it says here, to know him. That's why we say that salvation brings us into a relationship with God. And this is so key. Our relationship with Christ can be discerned by our attitude toward his commands. And why wouldn't it? Because to be a follower of Jesus is, is to come to discover who Christ is. And we're not just simply amazed that he took our place on the cross, but we actually see him as king of kings, lord of lords, as the most beautiful life that's ever been lived. And we, we're amazed that he loves us and has compassion on us. And we, in turn, love him. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus described this with a different metaphor. All you who are weary and burdened, come to me. You will find Rest for your souls. How? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, I know some of you know enough about what a yoke is to think that doesn't sound very inviting, that heavy timber across my neck that's placed there so I can pull a heavy burden. But in the imagery here, what that means is that Having come to Christ, he is our rabbi, our savior. We are his disciple. We are linked up into a relationship with him in which I will never go anywhere where Christ isn't going with me. I will never carry a burden in which Christ isn't carrying with me. This is the beauty of what it means to, to know Jesus. And this is what it's about. Do we have a relationship with Christ and with God? Our relationship with Christ can be discerned by our attitude toward his commands. If we truly know Christ, we know that he's trustworthy. We, we just know that we can trust whatever he says. If we truly know Christ and recognize that he, as he, as he says in the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and on earth is, is his. So if we truly know him and we hear him say, obey, our heart is quickly attuned to follow in obedience. So our relationship with Christ can be discerned. See, John here is trying to assure us. And his intention is for us, and, and if he was here today, I, I think what he's 
hoping for as we read these words is that, is that everyone in this room is just assured in their faith and, and is given confidence. Why? Because we know that God has changed our hearts into hearts of obedience. But the flip side is, if that's not true of you, then it's a warning, isn't it? What's meant to be assurance becomes a warning. If your heart isn't attuned to his commands and you don't want to obey, then it's a warning. Then notice this. Our obedience is an act of the will that flows from our genuine relationship with God. Look at these verses again with me. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. So here's a question for you. Is it keeping his commands that causes us to know him? Or is it knowing him that causes us to keep his commands? Think about that. Is it keeping his commands that causes us to know him? Or is it knowing him that causes us to keep his commands? Don't get this wrong. We get this wrong, we're right back to 1930, where it's the salvation by works, where we think it's all on us, it's all our labors, it's all our righteousness. Here is the beauty of this, even as God's word is calling us to obedience and saying, here's assurance for you. If you have a heart of obedience, that means that you're a believer. But notice this, our obedience is an act of the will that flows from our genuine relationship with God. So we see it in verse 3. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And notice, the truth is not in that person. I've already described to you this morning, that's not just the truth as in right or wrong. It's the truth in, as in a person, Jesus, who is the truth. Why would we obey his commands? Because Christ, who is the truth, who is the way, has come and taken up residence in our heart. Don't get the order wrong here. If anyone obeys his word, notice, love for God is truly made complete in them. Uh, scholars aren't sure if this should be our love for God or God's love for us, but the reality is it doesn't really matter. We love him because he first loved us. John's going to tell us in the same letter. But notice here, we obey, if anyone obeys his word, love for God is, notice, truly made complete in them. Who makes it complete in us? God does. See, what John is describing here is not a life that's trying to pull itself up by its bootstraps and try harder and earn my salvation. He's describing a life here that's been transformed by the new birth. And yes, is there an act of the will involved in us becoming believers? Yes, we have to repent. We have to believe, yes. And as we walk through this Christian life, every one of us who are a genuine believer know that as we've gone through periods of our Christian life where we have been disinterested, where we've been disobedient, we do not grow. There is always this mingling of our will and our obedience with the supernatural work of God within us. But always remember this. Our growth, even our obedience, is always a result of God's work within us. We obey because 
we know him. We obey because he has placed his truth within us. He himself is truth. We obey because God has loved us. We obey because God is truly uh, making us complete. All of these things are God's work within us. This is how we know we are in him. Let me finish just with a couple of simple definitions here. What is legalism? We think back to the beginnings of this church and the glorious salvation that came to people who were trapped, lost in legalism. And legalism is the assumption that I can be truly righteous by keeping the rules. It always requires that I ignore some of God's commands and obey human rules. It always results in an attitude of self-righteousness or self-doubt. Brothers and sisters, we are not called to legalism. We are called to discipleship. And discipleship is hearing the invitation to follow Christ and entrusting my life to him. And because I love him, I long to be like him. I obey his word as I trust in his life within me. I I humbly seek to make him known and bring him glory. And all of this only by his grace and glory within me. I've shared a story from the Old Testament with a couple of people recently, and it's a story about David when he was fleeing from Saul. And as he fled from Saul, he found himself at times living in the wilderness, living in a cave. And the scripture tells us, it's in 1 Samuel, of a time when he's in that cave and he's thirsty. Three of his, as the scripture calls them, mighty men overhear David in his thirst saying, oh, I wish I could just have some water from that well in Bethlehem. Bethlehem wasn't a big town. I don't know how many wells were there. Maybe there was only one, but it must have had really good water. Remember, David was from Bethlehem. But at the moment in which he had this thirst and had that longing for the water from Bethlehem, Bethlehem was occupied by the Philistines. But the story goes on to tell us that those three mighty men, David's soldiers, decided secretly they would go to Bethlehem. They would fight through Philistine lines. They would make it to the well. They would pull up that bucket of water. And then it would seem they fought their way back through the lines and made their way back to the cave with David. And I assume this pitcher of water, this bucket of water. They bring it to David. David is overcome. He's humbled. He actually turns that moment into a moment of worship, and he does something that seems a bit outrageous to us. He actually pours the water out. Ouch. The three mighty men knew exactly what he was doing, and they understood that he was... He viewed that water as the most precious thing he had in that moment. And because he loved God, he poured that precious water out to the Lord as an offering to him. And he says this, Is this not the blood of these men? Which makes me think that as these three men returned, they came with wounds. They literally were bleeding as they brought this precious water back to David. And so he poured it out. I tell that story because I long for us as individual believers, us as a church, 
to have that kind of love for Christ. Why would those three guys do that for David? I mean, probably because they'd been in the trenches with him, they had fought with him, they respected him, they loved him. And why would we live this kind of life for Christ only, only if we truly know him? And the wonder of the Christian life is, and I believe the teaching of Scripture is, that you'll only get to the well. You'll only bring your gift to Christ by the strength that he provides, by the resources that he gives through your relationship to him. But my question for us as I close now is this. Is it your heart to follow Jesus? Do you love him? Do you just long to to honor him? Do you want to know what he knows and live as he lives? Do you want to obey him? My prayer for us is that we would know him and his worthiness and that our hearts would be turned from lives of selfishness and self-righteousness to lives of surrender so that all we want to do is follow Christ and bring him glory. We're going to sing a closing song and then Andreas will come and close. Please have a seat. I said at the start of the service, I can't fly. I don't think any of you can, but when I listen to the message from Gary, I'm reminded that I can't live that life either. And I go back to Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Gary reminded us of that. It is, it is what God has done in our life. Some of you might be wondering, I don't, I don't feel that. I don't see that. I don't, I don't see Christ living that life in me. Maybe I don't even want that. That's not even what I, desire, what I want and what I desire. Philippians 2.13, it says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so what do we do if we don't seem to be working for God's good pleasure? What do we do if we don't even seem to be willing to work for his good pleasure? All we can do is call out to him and ask that he would give us that life, that he would give us Christ's life in us. So let's bow our heads together and let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Even when it's a hard word and we have to recognize that, Uh, we cannot live up to that. We cannot live that perfect life. But Father, we thank you that your word does not leave us there and leave it on us as we heard so many times this morning. Thank you that you are the one who works in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And Father, I pray for everyone in this room this morning, everyone watching online, if that is not a reality for them, Father, we call out to you that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see you for who you really are, and that you would cause that desire in us to live for you. And when we have that desire, when when our will is aligned with yours and we don't feel that we can do it, we feel unworthy, we feel incapable, that you would be the one working in our lives. Father, I pray this morning that each one of us would be able to say, as Paul did, that we have been crucified with Christ, we died to our old self, and that it is now no longer us living, but it is Christ living in us, 
enabling us to live according to your word, according to your will. And it is all you working in us. It is a gift of grace. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. And we ask for your strength. We thank you that you give us that strength every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.